if you would, to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians. So here's the deal. Y'all ready? I'm going to say things tonight that lots of you are going to disagree with. But that's going to be okay, right? And I'm going to challenge for some of you your presuppositions with regards to the second coming of Jesus from the text that we're going to be studying together. Now, I will happily be corrected should there be some error in my understanding of these passages, although I will admit I do not think there is. <laughs> but we're going to look together toward the second coming of Christ as we get to chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians. But I don't want you to miss the power of all else that is stated here in these verses. So we'll wade into some relatively deep waters as we come to that second chapter. But don't let that overshadow all that's being said here in 2 Thessalonians. We started last week um, moving along in our overview series. We're taking a book a Wednesday night if you're new to our Wednesday night gathering. Each Wednesday night it's a different book. We started way back in Genesis and it's been a book every Wednesday night, at least every Wednesday night that I was able personally to teach for the past several months now. And now we're into the back half of the New Testament landing tonight in 2 Thessalonians. This little book, just three chapters, holds forth a great deal of information for us, and much of the information set forth in 2 Thessalonians is a building upon what the Apostle Paul has already said in 1 Thessalonians. In fact, it seems that either a counterfeit letter bearing Paul's name has been sent to the church and has confused them about the second coming of Christ, or perhaps they received the real letter from Paul, 1 Thessalonians, and have just misunderstood some things along the way. In any event, Paul seeks to address a variety of issues in 2 Thessalonians, one among them being the second coming of Christ. There are some other pressing issues here as well. There are some in the church at Thessalonica that seem to believe that they have missed the resurrection. They have missed the second coming of Christ. So there's that misunderstanding. And then there are others who seem so enthusiastic for the second coming that they've just stopped working and they just watch the eastern sky for the return of Jesus. Neither of those are appropriate responses to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. And they may again be the product of some counterfeit letter. But in any event, Paul is writing to address the misconceptions and lack of understanding being experienced in Thessalonica. What is clear in the book is that the church at Thessalonica continues to suffer persecution. We talked brief in Thessalonica and the persecution that came with that early church plant movement. It was Sunday we talked about Acts 16 and Lydia at uh, Philippi. But last Wednesday night we talked about Acts 17 and, and Paul coming to Thessalonica. You may remember that the persecution for Paul was so severe, there was such zeal behind the persecution of Paul and his band of missionaries, that not only did they persecute him in the city of Thessalonica, they followed him to Berea. They pursued him in the next cities where he would minister to continue in his persecution. The promise of Christ's return and the vindication of our faith in the face of persecution are intended to be an encouragement to us, fuel for the gospel fire burning in the church at Thessalonica. We, we addressed this last week. This is what the promise of the second coming is supposed to do in the heart of the believer. N not to cause us to fear and dread the coming of Christ, 
but to stir in us a confidence that come what may, even if it means for us persecution in the present, there is coming a day when Jesus comes to vindicate every drop of Christian blood ever shed in the name of Jesus Christ. That is a, a clear again in 2 Thessalonians and emphasized once more here in uh, chapter 2. Look, look with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3. I find what Paul says here fascinating. We must always thank God for you, brothers. This is right, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you endure. Now think about this for just a minute. This is a little different than what Paul usually says in an introduction. For instance, in Philippians, he said, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you. I'm always thanking God for you. He says the same, essentially, in 1 Thessalonians. There are other letters where Paul makes reference to his prayerful thanksgiving for the church. But this is cast a little different. Look again at verse 3. We must always thank God for you, brothers. This is right. Since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Paul's not just making an observation about his personal practice of praying, prayers of thanksgiving for the church. He says it's morally right. We are compelled to pray this way, given what God is doing in this church. Now listen to what he says in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. Paul says, I'm bragging about you. Paul, who's really careful with the language of boasting, he says again and again in his writings, my boast is not in my strength, but in my weakness. For in my weakness, Christ is strong. His grace is sufficient for me. He is careful to note again and again and again that our sufficiency is not of ourselves. It is of Christ. He's reluctant to speak of his own authority as an apostle. He's resistant to the idea of any special praise or acknowledgement being attributed to him. And yet here Paul says, you are such a church, Thessalonica, that I make it my practice to brag essentially about you as a church. Some have cast the introduction to uh, 2 Thessalonians, these verses, verses 3 to 12, as the attributes of a church worthy of boasting or the kind of church that we could be proud of. And there are some attributes that are identified of the church at Thessalonica that stand out in these few verses. One, he celebrates the fact that their faith is flourishing. Their, their faith is growing. Remember again that persecution is their experience, that there's very real danger as a result of their faith in Jesus. And in the face of that, their faith is flourishing. That might seem counterintuitive to the outsider. You mean that you could deal in a hostile manner with people and they would still have the desire to press into that and to trust Jesus all the more. But from the inside, making this observation, you have experienced personally how under duress God draws near in a special way. Sometimes that pressure really reveals faith. 
where there may be nominal faith or a certain ambivalence about the gospel, even among those who know him, where we may grow cold or indifferent over the course of time. When hardship comes, when the difficulties come, it has a way of exposing the precious metals, the silver and gold of faith that exist in us, sometimes calloused over by hardness of heart created by the comfort we enjoy. But, but duress, pressure, stress, struggle, persecution can, can reveal that. You've experienced how it is that God draws near when difficult things happen. How even for those who grow distant from the Lord, when, when the tragedy strikes, there's a want to draw near, and indeed, God draws near. Rather than seeing the, things that un, the, the, the unfortunate things that unfold in our life as, as altogether bad, and in many instances, they, they are not good. Listen, we can call them, we can make reference to them as bad, Maybe as inherently evil, the things that can happen, dreadful things can happen in this life. People can do sinful things to us and against us. But ultimately, they serve our good because under that pressure, God draws near. And we labor to be brought near to him under that kind of uh, pressure like we don't often do in seasons of comfort. We look at Israel's experience in the Old Testament Every time things are good, they drift, and we scoff, and we ridicule Israel for their hardness of heart and inability to treasure God when things are going well. And it's precisely our situation. It is our life story. The Old Testament is autobiographical of every Christian. When things are good, we drift. But when, when the heartache comes, when bondage comes, when exile comes, when oppressive kings come, God draws near, and we draw near to him. And there's a closeness experienced in those seasons that is seldom known outside of that discomfort. Paul is boasting in the flourishing faith of the Thessalonican church. He continues on, This is right, since your faith is flourishing, and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. They're loving one another all the more. And, 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 and i got to tell you, this is, again, the byproduct of this kind of experience. When suffering and persecution come, there is a drawing together of the church. You know, I, I look at social media Christianity today, and, and I have come to the conclusion again and again and again that the only thing that can resolve the petty differences and almost constant contention that exists among so-called American evangelicalism is a real outbreak of persecution. Like, you'll stop caring about petty disagreements when people are trying to kill both you and the person you disagree with. Like, even things that can be distinguishing marks for fellowships, even things that can draw distinctives between denominations, become much lesser when the goal, the focus of the culture or society around us is to kill those or harm those who identify with Jesus. Now, the word of warning in that for us is this. Hasten to conduct yourselves as though persecution is an ever-present danger, or you may get the experience to live under the threat of persecution in order that our collective hearts would be moved in a sensible, reasonable direction. Paul's celebrating here that their faith is flourishing, and they're pulling together, they're drawing together, they're loving one another. You see this in lesser ways. Like it's, it's difficult to get a team to really pull together 
until they've experienced the hardship of two-a-days or long practices or conditioning that makes you want to find the trash can, right? When you experience those things together, there's a certain camaraderie and closeness that comes with that experience. I've experienced in ministry, it's difficult to really endear yourself to a people until you've suffered together. When you suffer together, when you share in that kind of suffering with others, there's a kinship, there's a bond that comes with that that is seldom ever broken. That was the experience for the church at Thessalonica. Among the things celebrated about that church was their flourishing faith and their increasing love for one another. The the next couple of attributes of this church are not far from the first two. Look to verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. Boast about their endurance and suffering. That in spite of the suffering they were experiencing, they did not quit. There are times when bad things happen and people seem to defect as a result of those bad things. I would just make the observation, and I don't intend this to sound cool or indifferent or careless with regards to those who suffer bad things and maybe even suffer bad things at the hands of those that they would assign the title of Christian. But there are no former Christians. There are no true defections. There's just the manifestation of what we always truly were. Maybe a superficial faith that was enough to identify with the Christian community, but not enough depth there. The heart had yet to be touched by the power of the gospel. Their faith had been shown to be sincere in the face of these experiences of suffering. Not only does he speak here to their endurance in suffering, he speaks to their faith in suffering. Even when there was pain for them, they trust God. I've, I've been struggling to find the language in recent days of of, of making the distinction between trusting God when we understand how things are going or why things are going in a certain direction and when we don't. Like, we don't really have trouble trusting God when we can see how he's at work or things are going to, according to plan. And I, I, I mentioned this example a few weeks ago, I think, on a Wednesday night. It's, it's like with our kids. Like, if they understand why I've told them to do something, they, they will typically follow through with that pretty quickly. They understand that this serves their interest, that it will be good for them to do this. It will be beneficial to them personally. But when they don't know, they ask why. And sometimes it's appropriate as parents sit down and have that conversation, but sometimes it's appropriate as a dad to say what my dad said to me, because I said so. That's why you do what your dad tells you to do, because he said to do it. That's why you do it. And we, we have that kind of back and forth at times, I think, with God when we don't see why it is that he's told us to do this thing or how this serves our benefit, we want to know why. Well, if God tells us all the whys, or if I sit down with those boys and I tell them all the whys, they're not obeying me, they're agreeing with me. They're, they're, they're putting together the pieces of how this serves their benefit. God has not called us necessarily to agree with him. He's called us to obey him. It's easy to agree with God when things are going smoothly. But when the difficulties come and we can't see how is it work or how this serves our interests, the inclination is to question how he's at work. And it's there that we say things like, our faith is being tested 
or I'm having doubts, or I'm really struggling in this season of my life. That's not the time to struggle. That's the time to rest. If you don't know what's going on, it's a good indicator that God is keenly involved in the circumstances of your life at that moment. We're not called to agree with him or understand him or know all that he's at work doing in the world around us. We are called to trust and to rest in him. One of the beautiful things about the church at Thessalonica is that even when the persecution come, when they could not understand how this would serve their interest or what God was up to, when they didn't know the why, they simply obeyed God, trusting him in faith. And that's precisely the thing that God has called us to do. The remainder of chapter one is really given to a discussion of how God will vindicate his justice, his love for the church, in, in bringing judgment against those who persecute the church and demonstrating his love for the church at the return of Jesus. And these two events seem to be simultaneous to one another. In other words, it seems to me that what Paul is describing is Jesus returning in an act of judgment and redemption simultaneously. And that is further advanced in my estimation in chapter number 2. The theme of chapter 1, especially verses 3 through 12, is a church worthy of boasting. And the theme of chapter 2 is the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse number 1. Y'all ready for this? Here we go. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or a message or by a letter, as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Now, the language there suggests that Paul is saying there's a counterfeit letter that's come to you that I didn't write, and it's saying some things to you about the coming of Jesus that are inaccurate. And so what follows is an address of those inaccuracies or misunderstandings. Listen to verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy or the falling away comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he is himself God. So this is the scenario. They are fearful that they have missed the resurrection. Some people will use the language of rapture in American evangelicalism. It's almost exclusive to American evangelicalism. I'm not a fan of the word, although I don't mind it. Some people will really nitpick that and say, well, the word rapture is not the Bible. Well, it's not. But the gathering of the church to Jesus in the air on the last days is clearly in the Bible. In fact, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we just looked at last week. So I'm not averse to the language of rapture, but if you want to be specific and faithful to the Bible, the word resurrection is a far more accurate reflection of what Jesus is or what Paul is describing at the return of Jesus. They fear they have missed the resurrection. And Paul seeks to address that by pointing out that you know that you have not missed the resurrection because the son of law, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition has not yet been revealed. Now, I, I almost always steer clear of these conversations because they very seldom yield much spiritual fruit. But we're going to have a brief conversation here about the man of lawlessness or the son of perdition. 
You need to turn back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24 for just a moment. Matthew 24. And if you want to make notes here, the, the three chapters where Jesus speaks to his return in the Gospels are as follows. Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 19. Mark 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on, the Mount, uh, on um, Mount Olivet, and he gives this sermon. This sermon is largely focused on his return, given that Jesus is about to depart in death and resurrection in just a short time. The chapter begins in verse 1, with Jesus leaving and going out from the temple complex, his disciples come up and call his attention to the temple buildings. He replied to them, don't you see all these things? I assure you not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is making direct reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in A.D. 70, roughly 40 years after his death and resurrection. Verse 3 says, While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What's it going to be like? Tell us, Jesus. We really want to know. He begins in verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, because these things must, must, must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of the birth pains. They will hand you over for persecution, and they will kill you. For you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Many will take offense, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, because lawlessness will multiply, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop mustn't come down to get things from his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For at that time, there'll be a great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive. But those days will be limited because of the elect. Now let me give you a little background on Matthew 24 because this passage really informs what Paul is describing in 2 Thessalonians 2. He makes reference in verse 15 to the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. In the prophecy of Daniel, he speaks of a time that at the time of Jesus had already come. A time when a man named Antiochus Epiphanes would overrule the city of Jerusalem would come into the temple and desecrate the temple and position himself within the temple as though he himself were deserving of worship. There was the slaughter and sacrifice of unclean animals on uh, the altar of God during that period. It, it was one of the low points in the history of Israel as a nation. 
And that experience becomes paradigmatic for Jesus and others who point to the last days. In other words, Antiochus coming into the temple and boasting as though he were God becomes the illustration for Jesus to say, in the last days, the Antichrist will present himself in a similar fashion. He will regard himself as divine. He will insist upon the worship of the people. And this will be a key signal for the church to understand that these are indeed the last days. Now, I want to note here that the concern of the New Testament is not that we fixate ourselves on the Antichrist, but that we be vigilant in watching out for the many Antichrists, John says, have even in the first century already gone out. The goal of end times teaching in the New Testament is not that we be fascinated or fixated on the Antichrist or Antichrist, but that we would be fixated and therefore encouraged at the promise of the coming of the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. But the coming of this Antichrist is at a pivotal moment in a period referred to by Jesus as the tribulation. Now, some of y'all are going to disagree with me. Y'all throw rocks when we're done. But that period of tribulation is made reference to as tribulation, not because so much of what is happening in the world climate, and I don't mean weather there, I just mean in general, but because the church herself is experiencing tribulation. What I'm, let me connect some dots here, and I'll help you to see why you, don't dis, why you don't agree with your pastor. What Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2 is that the resurrection of the church cannot and will not come un, until after the Antichrist has been revealed. And what Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 24 is that the Antichrist will not come until the church is already experiencing the tribulation of those days. What I'm saying to you is I do not agree with this, I will call it distinctly American. Maybe that's not as gracious as it should be, but I think distinctly American view where the church is taken out of the world before there's real hardship and persecution. I think that's clear from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm not really sure about the interpretation of those verses in a way that affords the ability to say the church is going to be raptured out before all these dreadful things happen. From my perspective, it's described as tribulation specifically because the church is enduring through those experiences. And so Paul is saying to a suffering church, a church suffering experiences much like what Jesus has described in Matthew 24, you have not missed the resurrection. And the reason you know you haven't missed the resurrection is because the Antichrist, ultimately the son of lawlessness, this man of perdition, has not yet been revealed. Not until his revelation will the resurrection unfold the way Jesus foretells. That is my understanding of what Jesus is, or what Paul rather is describing in these verses. Now look to verse number five. Paul says, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this. The second coming of Jesus is an important part of the teaching ministry of the apostle Paul. Now, I don't hear a lot of preaching about the second coming of Jesus anymore. And, and I think sometimes because of the issues we just addressed, I think people are afraid of there being some point of disagreement. Let me just say, 
If I'm wrong and the church is resurrected before the tribulation, I'll high-five you on the way to heaven, right? Like, I'm not tripped up on that, and you really should not be either. I'm going to be excited about that. I'm just, I'm just telling you, I think it's unrealistic for us to expect that a kingdom ethic that consistently calls us to be willing to suffer would remove us from that experience in the last days. What's important for us to understand together, and, and from what I understand of the early church fathers and the first four centuries of church history, there was very little interest in establishing a chronological order for the events of the second coming of Christ and a great deal of insistence that the church understood the promise of the second coming of Christ. And maybe the answer to, to a, a new birth a, a, a blossoming of preaching on the promise of Christ's coming and the encouragement that stands to come to our heart, maybe a bit of the answer is to detach ourselves from this fascination with understanding the chronological order of every event as described and just to relish the promise that there is indeed coming a day when the sky rolls back as a scroll and you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in great glory to gather us to himself and to vindicate justice against all of those who have opposed his people and his kingdom. Maybe, just maybe, that's the answer. I think you can have both. I think there can be real effort at understanding the intricacies of what Jesus promises will happen so long as that's enjoyed with cool heads and reasonable minds, while focusing all the while on this remarkable promise. As assured as we are that Christ has come the first time, we might likewise be just as certain that he will come again, and great and glorious that day will be. Paul says, when I was with you, I told these things. I preached, I taught, I instructed. And there's a very real small group of teachings that seem to be consistent in Paul's ministry. Everywhere he went, there was a, a small handful of things he wanted to be sure that he taught. And among them was the promise of Christ's second coming. Uh, let's see, where were we? Uh, verse number six. You know what currently restrains him so that he'll be revealed in his time. I would say there it is Jesus who restrains him. It may seem as though he is running wild in the world, and indeed the world is under the sway of darkness and the prince of darkness, but there seem to be by God's sovereignty certain limitations that have been provided on him or for him. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now restraining will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. It is that at the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sentence for Satan has been passed. He is now waiting on death row for the very day that is described in our passage, when his final destruction is a reality, not just something foretold, guaranteed, assured, but something that becomes for him a reality. I, I don't want our time to get away before we look at what remains in the passage, but I do want you to see the last few, uh, in the book rather, but I do want you to see the last few verses of chapter 2 to reinforce something that we stated in last week's message. Look to verse 13. This is after all this discussion on the day of the Lord, Antichrist, return of Jesus. But we must always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, 
Because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by our message or by our letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every work and word. The function of his teaching on the second coming is the strengthening and encouragement of the church. And that is its role in the heart and life, the experience of every believer, even still. That's what the promise of the second coming is supposed to do for the people of God. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul makes a request for prayer. Look to verse 1. Finally, brothers, Pray for us that the Lord's message may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Prayer request number one, Paul says, pray for the advancement of the gospel. That's a good way to pray for your pastor. You know what encourages me? You know what encourages all of our pastors? You know what really just gets us fired up? It's hearing reports of how God is at work, how people come to faith. I I mentioned this in the second and third service Sunday I got, I, I got a chance to talk to two new believers after the first service, and I could have just preached all day. You know, we could have had five or six services on Sunday just, just to hear how God is at work. If you want to know how to best pray for your pastors, pray that God would be pleased to allow us, them, you, to be a part of, of genuine kingdom-advancing ministries. In verse 2, he, he continues and makes a second request. Pray also that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. This is a good way to pray for your pastors. Sometimes wicked, evil, unbelieving men do things that are harmful and detrimental to men who seek to see the kingdom advanced. Pray for protection and for deliverance and and safekeeping and God's providence in our lives to be faithful even under those circumstances. What's interesting about these five verses, and there's a paragraph here, verses one through five seem to go together. Paul still say, he's still under the topic of pray for us, but his attention turns to them. He gets two verses out in prayer request, and then he goes on to sermonize a bit. Verse three says, but the Lord is faithful. He'll strengthen and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you're doing and will do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. God's faithful to answer these prayers. We want you to know that even as you pray for these things for us, that we're trusting that God's going to do these things and abundantly more in your life. He is faithful. The remainder of chapter 3, I, I find it's a little bit funny, but maybe I'm, I'm taking too lightly what Paul is saying here. I, I, I can't fathom an experience where people would stop working because of the promise of Jesus is coming. But I suppose it's a possibility. And I think there have probably been some lesser examples of this happening in various corners of the world in, in, in recent years. Um, you know, you saw people sort of panic with the Y2K thing. That's the only thing in my adult life I can really remember being a part of. Uh, people really panicked about that, ends coming, ends coming. And maybe there was a little bit of that in 2012, the whole prophecy of 2012 and all that. There's always something. But there was a big deal like in the 80s, which I don't remember, but in the 80s um, among Christians about... Jesus coming, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988. Some of you will remember that. It's a whole book, made lots of money. It always makes lots of money, right? Um, But that's the situation for the church at Thessalonica. Look to verse 6. 
Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. In this context, irresponsible means unemployed on purpose and not walking according to the tradition you receive from us means adhering to a different understanding of, of the end times, the one they received in the letter that was alleged to be from them. Verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know how, we, how, how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We didn't eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled, working night and day, so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this was what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Now, clearly, the issue being addressed in our passage are people that are not working and they're mooching off of the church. And this was an issue throughout the New Testament period because of the hospitality of the church. And I got to tell you, showing hospitality to an extreme that opens you, that makes you vulnerable to the greed and mistreatment of others is a good thing. The problem is not with the person who shows hospitality. The problem is with the people who seek to take advantage of the hospitality of the church. So Paul says the principle for us is if you don't work, you don't eat. I kind of like the principle myself. And, uh, and, and you know, I wish, if you, if you look back, and I don't want to get into something that I don't want to get into, but if you, if you look at the structure of Israel and the provision of the nation for those who were underprivileged or suffering, it was an ingenious system. Do you remember the system? Every farmer, and it was an agrarian culture, every farmer was instructed that they would leave a certain amount around their field. If they were to drop off of their harvest, it wasn't to be retrieved. There, there was a certain bit that was to be left behind in the event that there were those in the community that did not themselves have the benefit of a harvest that year or the advantage of owning property within their family or whatever the case would be. In other words, it was a system structured to meet the needs of every citizen but required the contribution of labor on the part of every citizen. Now, I'm not trying to nitpick, and I know, I know what perceptions are, and I got, listen, I got all that. But I want you to understand that a good, hard work ethic is a distinctly Christian principle. And the reason that you see a drifting away from that kind of work ethic in our culture is because there is a drifting away from Christian ethics. One of, one of the things that I always point to to demonstrate this is the concern for timeliness in our culture. If you ever travel to the East and someone says, I'll meet you there at 9 o'clock or at the 9 o'clock commitment that was made, it's just a different culture where things are philosophically relative, whereas in our culture there's an insistence upon absolute truth, among other things, and the principle of keeping your word is found in the Bible. This is a distinctly Christian thing. We, we, we take those kinds of things for granted, but society is better because of the teaching of the Bible in ways that we never count for. There's no calculation for us. When we, when we think about people needing to be on time, we just think, well, everybody's on time. It's become a cultural thing. 
Well, it's become a cultural thing as a product of the teaching of the Bible, generation after generation after generation within the country that, that, that we find our citizenship in. These are distinctly Christian principles. So if you're tardy at work on a consistent basis, you're not just sloughing off responsibilities assigned to you in the workplace. You are in direct violation of a biblical principle. It is a sin against God. To, to, to fail to provide for the needs of those who are in your care, especially those of us who are men. The Bible says if you fail to provide for the needs of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. There are clear responsibilities that come with following after Jesus as it relates to every area of life. Work is certainly not an exception to that. So Paul says the standing principle, and there can be qualifications and there can be caveats. There are those who simply are not capable of working. There are those that experience hardships and shortcomings, and, and there can be a famine in the land in a 21st century kind of sense where people don't have the opportunity to work. I'm not talking about all of those examples, but the, the principle, the core principle that stands is if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Verse 11, just quickly. For we hear that there's some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that, qu that quietly working, they may eat their own food. Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Persevere. Press on. This is good insight for us. It's good insight coming away from this strong teaching on the promise of Jesus' return. Until that day comes... Until that great day comes, the clear instruction of Jesus is to persevere in the work to which he has called us, to do everything you set your hand to do to the glory of God, not as unto employers or supervisors or bosses, but as unto Christ as an act of kingdom service with integrity, with precision, with great effort, with a spirit of excellence, do it as unto the Lord. And do it in anticipation of that great day. There's going to come a day when the whistle blows, when the trumpet sounds, when Christ comes again and all is made well. Aren't you glad for that? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the privilege of considering these verses together. God, we do celebrate tonight the promise that Jesus is coming again. This Christmas season, as we consider his coming a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Help us not to forget that we're assured in that first advent of a second advent. Jesus comes with an altogether different countenance, with an agenda unlike the first, having come to seek and save that which was lost, returning again to gather the lost sheep to himself. Father, thank you for all that you have afforded us in the gospel, for the peace that we have in Jesus, the atonement of our sins, the promise of everlasting life, and the assurance of a future firmly secured by the blood of Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Come on with it.